Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching, and today we're going to be talking about engagement and motivation. Now, if you've spent any time listening to the podcast or if you've worked with us uh, in our workshops or joined us online for any of our webinars, you would have heard us talk a lot about self-determination theory. Self-determination theory comes from the work of two researchers from the United States, Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan, and I am delighted to say that joining me today is one half of that team, Professor Richard Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, Dan, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, as I said, we spend a lot of time talking about self-determination theory, engagement, and motivation. And the self-determination theory posits that there are three fundamental considerations that we need to, I guess, take into account uh, when we're thinking about engaging or or motivating either ourselves or, or perhaps other people. And I just wondered if, just to get the ball rolling today, if you could just take us through, like, in a nutshell, if that's possible, um... You know, what are the three core considerations of self-determination theory? Well, then, you know, from the beginning of our work, we've been really interested in what are the conditions under which people are really engaged and uh, at their best when they're in any activity. Um, And when we started that, we got interested in intrinsic motivation. And since then, we've been really interested in uh, all forms of deep engagement. And when we looked at those things, we thought, well, of those conditions, the things that support people's autonomy or their sense of willingness and volition that can draw them in, have them feel interested or valuing what they're doing. That's really important. Another thing really important is that people can feel that they're, uh, they have mastery or that uh, they can be effective at what they're doing. It's really demotivating if you just get negative feedback or you don't feel that sense of mastery. And third, uh, to be really motivated, typically you need to feel a sense of connection or like you belong in the place where you're working or doing the activity. So our theory I guess in a nutshell, although it's obviously pretty um, nuanced and complex, in a nutshell, it would be that when you can support people's sense of autonomy, their sense of competence or mastery, and their sense of relatedness, then they'll be more motivated and engaged in the activities. It's interesting there that you use the words competence and and mastery um, together, because that's one of the things that... um, having not had the opportunity to ask you um, about, which I'm going to right now, is how, um, you know, I think Dan Pink really popularized, um, you know, your, that's certainly how I came to really jump into into your work in his book, Drive. And he, he used that word mastery, um, whereas, uh, you know, you, you self-determination theory, I've actually been picked up a few times actually being told I'm wrong when I talk about mastery. It's, it's actually competence. And I'm, I'm curious as to the difference between those two words and how you, as the, um, you know, um, one of the developers of this theory, how do you reconcile the difference between someone who's competent or, or feels they have competence versus someone who's striving for mastery? Well, the first thing I, you know, I'd like to say is, you know, Dan Pink's book I, is a, kind of a popular version of some of the work we do in the science of self-determination theory. And I've appreciated that he's brought a lot of our ideas to the public. Um, And he used his own terminology, used mastery instead of what we would typically say is competence. Um, And when he uses it, he has his own phrasing about it. He talks about mastery as, uh, you know, wanting to be effective at things that are important to you. 
And we certainly wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, you know, the term mastery motivation has been in psychology for a long time, and it really is that sense of being able to do something, feeling like you can uh, master or have competence at something. So I don't see the terms as, uh, as having a lot of different meaning. I think it's important in our work that when people are feeling the satisfaction of competence, it's in a situation not just where they can do something, but where they feel like they're really being able to apply their skills, where they're accomplishing something, and where they feel like there's possibilities for growth and learning, not just kind of static being able to do something. Um, you know, I guess, you know, I can, I can open doors pretty competently at this point in my life, but opening doors doesn't give me a feeling of competence. It's way too easy. So it's, it's when we're engaged in something where we really feel like we're applying our skills uh, that you get that sense of competence or the satisfaction of competence that we're so focused on in SDT. And so in the, um, in, in the, the business world or in the education world, it strikes me that um, that should be a given, right? Like we want people to apply what they're good at and get better at those things. And yet it also strikes me that sometimes in those settings may and maybe I don't know but maybe because the other concepts there of autonomy and purpose maybe they're not I don't know as well articulated or resonating with the people in there and I'm wondering to what extent it's a real symbiotic relationship between those three areas of competence relatedness and, and um, autonomy well you know I think the first thing Dan is um, even if we were just sticking in the area of competence a lot of times in schools or in workplaces the way in which managers or uh, teachers or leaders try to let people know about their competence is by giving them uh, certain kinds of feedback, by grading them, by comparing them with other people. And oftentimes, rather than enhancing a sense of competence, it's diminishing a sense of competence and, and interest in the activity. So a lot of our work has been in what kind of positive feedback and what kind of constructive feedback can really help people stay engaged and have that sense of competence and growth rather than how can they know where they stand next to other people, which is so much the focus of feedback in organizations and, and schools. Uh, but I also agree with your question, which is a lot of theories about competence, uh, whether we're talking about mindset theory or self-efficacy theory, often forget about the autonomy component. Uh, if you are competent at something that you don't have interest in or don't value or don't see the reason for doing, it doesn't matter how competent you feel. You're not going to be engaged in the fullest way. So without, we say both autonomy and competence uh, are necessary conditions for high quality motivation. Yeah. And so that's, um, there's a couple of things that I'd like to sort of dig into there. That first one around, um, you know, we grading the work and, and whatnot. What about those um, people who, um, for want of a better word, might think, well, we can't do anything other than that. Like we have to grade um, the, you know, our students, for example, or we have to get, we, you know, we have to assess our um, employees and our team members against this, you know, for one, uh, rubric that we've come up with about what kind of capabilities we're after. I can understand how it might be demotivating for someone who keeps getting told you know at school you're a d or you're an e i can understand how in the workplace it can be quite demotivating to being told you're simply not up to scratch but talk to me a little bit about how it can also be demotivating for those people who for all intents and purposes seem to be really succeeding well you know the the satisfaction of competence and i think this is true of of all intrinsically motivated learning is that you're actually growing you're doing something new 
getting a good grade, if I'm a good student and I easily get A's and they give me the A for it, that's not helping me feel more sense of competence or engagement. It's just kind of rewarding me for uh, an ability or skill I already have. And it can really convert your motivation away from wanting to learn to wanting to get an A. And the focus or the pathway to getting an A might be very narrow. Oh, memorize these things. Whereas the pathway to learning, that might be reading extra things, trying to really understand and grapple with the concepts. Uh, that's a much deeper idea than just the narrow pathway to get an A. And, you know, we see this a lot in education now, which is there's this, all this focus on very narrow um, test scores as the outcomes that all schools are striving for. And you see what's happening with that is this narrowing of the curriculum, this uh, introduction of, uh, of uh, material that's not interesting to either teachers or students, all in the service of getting the grade, which actually is undermining engagement and motivation rather than promoting it. So, you know, we would separate in, in our work uh, uh, what positive feedback is, which is that your efforts are actually having uh, a, an impact on your environment and you're being able to you know, make change happen versus you're coming out comparatively well next to others. So how do you then reconcile that? Because, again, doesn't is it, is it not almost so ingrained? I'm, I guess I'm really interested in the work that you're doing in terms of how you um present the case for change so to speak how do you how do you convince people um that they should be thinking about these things somewhat differently in terms of grading or in terms of the feedback systems that they have in the workplace well the, the first thing is there's an evidence base out there dan and um you know the no matter how pervasive grades are in schools there's never been any positive uh findings concerning them as having a a motivational effect. You know, we use grades in some ways as gatekeepers. I, you can see why you would evaluate people to see whether they're ready for the next step in uh, some sequence, but n grades don't motivate. And I think people confuse, you know, grades as evaluations and gatekeepers uh, versus grades as a motivational tactic. And there's just no evidence that uh, grading people increases their motivation for a task, even, uh, even when they're at the high end of grading. Because grading has very little information in it. And just to give you an example of that, if I write an essay and the teacher, uh, you know, you're my teacher and you give me back my grade and you say, oh, B plus. Well, I know how I did maybe relative to other students, but I don't know what was good or not good about my essay. The, the B plus gives me no information. But if you said, hey, I really like the way you made this point over here and here was a point where you know, I really wasn't uh, compelled and here's why. In other words, you gave me feedback that was rich and specific to what I did. That's really engaging. And if we want people to learn, of course, it's that rich, dense feedback uh, about what they actually accomplished, not how they compare to others that, that really motivates. Common practice tends to be um, give you the grade and give you the feedback. So there'll be plenty of educators who are listening and say, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd do all that, Richard. I'd tell, you know, I'd absolutely do point out what they've done well and I've point out the next steps. One of my favorite studies on this was Ruth Butler uh, did some work. And once you put the grade on there, then the feedback becomes less salient Yeah, because people get in on the grade. Mm. Um, you know, I, I do think a lot of teachers do give rich feedback. I'm not saying they don't. I'm saying that, uh, that the grade part is mostly demotivating and it's certainly not adding to motivation. The part that's motivating is the informational dense and rich feedback that you can get for how you've done a task. 
So in terms of motivation in school, because, I mean, to what extent um, is that even... It, well, <laughs> this is a loaded question. So uh, to what extent is motivation actually as important in schools as perhaps schools would have you believe? Or, the you know, ev every school talks about student engagement, for example. Um, every department seems to talk about student engagement. But objectively speaking, when you look at it, how important do you think intrinsic motivation actually is from from a school's point of view for example how much autonomy do we really want kids to have well i think you want them to have as much as possible because what autonomy means uh, at least in the way we use the term is that you're willingly engaged in something and you're volitionally doing it and i think every school wants students to be wanting to learn and wanting to be engaged in the subject matter that's there and you can't have too much of it I think sometimes people get confused with the idea of autonomy. They think, oh, give kids autonomy means let them do whatever they want. That's not really what it means in our work. It means how can you help students become volitional for what they're doing? Um, you know, none of us really get engaged in something unless we have a good reason or value for doing so. You know, if you, if you ask me to do this podcast, you know, you give me a good reason. Hopefully we'll be able to reach some people or make some sense. I have a reason for doing it. If you said, oh, I just, you know, you just made me do this thing and I didn't have a good reason, I'd be less engaged. Yeah. I hope you don't feel like that. Oh yeah. You've, you've been pretty, you know, heavy handed. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to send the boys around. Who is? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you can't have too much autonomy. You also can't feel too confident that what you're doing and, you know, no one's ever really been more motivated because they've been given failing grades. That doesn't increase anybody's motivation. It makes them want to disengage. What you want for feedback is how you can do better, how you can move from wherever you are at point A to point B, and how you can efficaciously do that. And so constructive feedback, feedback that helps you grow and learn and then feel that sense of accomplishment, that's that's really motivating. What, what about um, outside of say learning and the content areas what about um you know the, the the notion that a lot of schools have um particularly here in australia around the use of uh, rewards and points and you know there's companies which i won't i won't mention but there are companies which basically you know provide platforms for um teachers to allocate points for kids sitting up straight or picking up litter or doing the right thing generally speaking i'm curious as to how that impacts the autonomy, you know, that volition, that self, that self direction. Um, by way of an example, I was in a school a couple of um, about a year or so ago now, and in the, the, there were still teachers there using points to encourage Year Twelve students to take part in in their final year of class, and I thought to myself that that seemed a, an unusual use of um, points if we have to you know give students who are in their final year of school a reward for asking a question or answering a question um i i i'm just interested in your thoughts on on the use of these which is so widespread it's so commonplace to suggest that a school wouldn't have one is almost you know you, you looked at a little bit strange so i'm curious to in, in when you reflect on your work uh how how do these interplay how do the point systems the reward systems play uh is there any is there a place for them is there any positives to be had from that or is it somewhat um 
yeah, disingenuous to say we want our kids to be engaged and then have a rewards or a point system. Well, the, the issue with point systems is not that they cannot, that they never motivate anybody. If you have some, I guess, good carrots behind the points, you'll have some kids who pay attention to them. The problem is that their motivation then becomes to get the points. And that means that you're reinforcing any pathway to getting points. So let's say that you give me points for raising my hand in class. I'll just start asking stupid questions all the time or questions I already know the answer to because that gives me points. I give you a good example on a school I worked with where they have, we're giving kids points for pro-social behavior in school. So whenever a kid did a good thing and a teacher saw it, they gave that kid points and then there were prizes at the end of the month. And the children in the, in the school quickly learned about the system and therefore they wouldn't, they would uh, wait till the teacher was looking and then somebody would drop their books and the other one would pick them up so that they could get points. They gamed the system. But the worst thing about it was Students also learned never do something kind unless a teacher is looking because you don't get points for it. So the motivation became how to get points, not how to be pro-social, how to, to you know, be kind to other kids and therefore actually undermined or distorted uh, even the goal of the program itself. They finally abandoned the program because actually the school was becoming less kind a place. Which is really interesting. Rewarding the things you want ends up with people doing less of the thing you want in that case. Exactly. Yeah, you, you, you can't get people to be curious through a point system. Yeah. You get them to be curious because you have interesting material and engaging material and you have a good reason for them paying attention to it. Uh, points is not a good reason. Yeah. These systems have also not shown a great deal of efficacy in, uh, in promoting the kind of learning and engagement we would really want in kids. So I know that they're still widely used um, but I think it comes from a very old school of motivation that really hasn't borne itself out if what we're trying to do is, uh, is promote active learners. So what about, um, how, how do you respond to somebody in, let's say, a tough environment and they say something along the lines of, well, we wouldn't be able to get them to do anything if we didn't. You know, there seems to be that um, there are certain, mm -hmm. you know, population groups or certain, you know, schools, whatever, who, who sort of look at you and go, well, I'd like to see you try. You know, I'd like to see what would you do in this. This is literally <laughs> the only way we can get them to be quiet. This is literally the only way we can get them to hand anything in. What, 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 what do you yeah. say to them? Well, the first thing, Dan, is I don't, I don't, when people say that, I don't doubt them because we have what we call the self-fulfilling prophecy in teaching styles, which is if I've started out with my classroom and I've gotten them to behave by controlling them in uh, either with carrots or sticks, quickly I've converted them to only being in control when the carrot and stick is out. In other words, I've trained them to only pay attention to these things as motivators. And in the meantime, I've also undermined the motivations I wish they would have if I didn't have to be bringing out these things all the time. You know, we call it the self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're really controlling with your workers or your students or others, they will now only respond when you bring out the punishments or the rewards. Um, on the other hand, if you start out with respecting your students and you're engaged with them and you listen to their obstacles and you uh, give them rationales for why we're doing the things that we're doing and you... Uh, help them through the barriers that they're experiencing. They get engaged and they don't need the carrots and sticks. And so you've got a different self-fulfilling prophecy. 
which is, gee, I found out that students are actually interested and curious and they'd like to learn and like to feel good about what they're doing. Does that need to be like a, 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 you know, a school-wide approach? I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking of, for example, an idealistic new teacher goes in, wants to do that, but because they're mm-hmm. going against the grain of the norm, of the cultural norms, it's, it's just easier. <laughs> it's just easier to fall into using the, the carrot and the stick. Well, a couple of things about that, Dan. One is I certainly think the whole school climate matters. And there's been a lot of evidence that, for instance, school principals have a lot to do with setting the tone in schools and social policies, even above schools and superintendents. They have a lot of impact if they're really driving, for instance, for uh, the narrow outcome of test scores. They can they can really corrupt a school environment. So uh, at the top of school climates are a lot of things that do affect teachers. But I think all of us have also had the experience in school of even within the same school, there's some really inspiring and engaging teachers and there's other ones who are just dreadful and, <laughs> and you can and both exist within the same climate. So it's clear that teachers have a lot of power within their own classroom. And a lot of times, even when the policies are bad, we say, uh, you know, the teacher's job is to put up an umbrella. It's definitely raining out there, but you still want to create inside your classroom a secure, safe and learning-oriented atmosphere that, that can really, uh, I think, lift all boats for the children. Oh, the reason we're spending so much time talking about education is a, a, on a couple of episodes ago, we had um, Alfie Cohn on um, talking about his, his work around being punished by rewards, and that's why I really wanted to dig into this. And I just wanted to um, share with you something that Alfie actually said in, in that episode, just to see your take on it because I don't know if you've heard Alfie speak much but he's not too he doesn't sit on the fence you know he's pretty he's pretty all in so this is what he said every time you offer a child a mark a good grade you know or a good job I really like the way you did whatever you are destroying that child's intrinsic sense of control, of autonomy, of interest in, and ultimately excellence at whatever she was doing. When when I heard that, I was like, "Wow, okay, that's pretty." He's gone all in there, um, and I'm still not sure uh, where I sit with this. I, I appreciate, you know, the, where he's coming from, but I'm curious specifically to hear your reflection on that. Um, particularly, you know, the word "destroy." He's not leaving anything uh, in, to doubt there. What, what, what's your take on uh, Alfie's position? Well, I wanted to say a couple of things. You know, I've, I've known Alfie's work for a long time. Punished by Rewards was really a lot based on the work that we do in self-determination theory on the undermining effect of rewards. But we have never said, and I think our position is just more nuanced than that. Uh, we've never said that all rewards are undermining and certainly not all praise is undermining. I think most people really appreciate a praise like, you know, good job, you know, I really like what you did there. To me, that's actually supporting their perceived competence and is likely to be positively motivated. And that's what the evidence says. Where praise goes wrong is if the praise is manipulative or it's praise that's being used to get you to do more of something. Where, you know, what comes across is I'm praising you, but I'm praising you because I want, you know, I'm trying to get you to do more. That feels controlling and that undermines. So, you know, praise is, is more nuanced than that. Uh, when you praise people for specific accomplishments and for efforts that they've really been engaged in, it typically is positively motiv- motivating. But 
you know, if you praise people by comparing with them with others, oh, you're better than, uh, you know, Jimmy or Sally is at that. That's not helpful praise because it raises the whole spectrum social comparison and, and it's undermining or if you say praise in a way that's like oh you know great job you're doing just what i want you to do that's really undermining of motivation so it depends on how you praise and yeah. a lot of and our the intentions behind people, it yeah yeah and the intention behind it yeah i think i think you hit it on the head if the intention is i really do appreciate what you've done there i really do see some uh something that you've accomplished that's special that's worthy of praise and that's really enhancing and i think we all feel that and I, I like to be praised you know i like i'd like you after this interview to say hey rich great job you really answered these questions well <laughs> you know that's you can that's be sure i will <laughs> <laughs> so it, the same is true with rewards there are some rewards that can be positive you know an unexpected reward you know the class works all week long and at the end of the week you say hey you know we we put in so much work this week you know we're going to have a a pizza party here on Friday afternoon, I think kids will feel more motivated because of that. But if you start the week and yeah. if you work hard all week, I will give you a pizza at the end of the week. That's undermining motivation. Yeah. It's like, really, I'm going to work all that hard for a pizza. Forget it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think you, I've, I've read something you, you and um, Ed might've written where it's saying that the best use of extrinsic rewards is when they're unexpected. Yeah. Would that have come from you? Uh, certainly, unexpected rewards do not have, uh, typically do not have an undermining effect on motivation. So that, that certainly could have come from us. Rewards can be positive. I mean, if I'm in a, working in an organization, you know, a part of why I'm there is because I do want salary. It's whether I, the salary is used as a, uh, a string to get me to do things, or rather it feels like a recognition of the contributions I make. Um, I think people want to feel recognized and they want to feel rewarded for what they do, but they, you know, to try and use the rewards to motivate, I think that's where it backfires. Which is where things like performance uh, related pay or bonuses often fall down, right? Because it's, it actually, again, undermines the behavior. They do enough to get the bonus and then no more. In a lot of cases, I'm thinking of salespeople, et cetera. It's been shown that it can actually, again, bit like the uh, kindness uh, scenario we were talking about before, we actually get less of what we want by rewarding what we want. Yeah, recent, recently there was a really cool study where uh, the company wanted to get more on-time uh, attendance at the company. So they started rewarding people for coming in on, on time. And a lot of their good workers started doing less good quality work because they thought, well, they're rewarding us for coming in, not for what we do once we're here. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, yep. so once you start that kind of form of motivation, it can really, I think, spoil uh, people's engagement. I, I wanted to round out our chat, if if you don't mind, by sort of bringing in another theory that we spend a lot of time exploring: the interplay between uh, SDT and 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 that's uh, Carol Dweck's mindset theory. Um, I'm curious as to because we often. We'll talk about um, you know the purpose side of things, and then the autonomy side, and then the the competence and mastery side. But then we weave in, you know, the, the, I guess what we're trying to you know, the mindset is the the belief you can improve, and SDT is the desire to improve. That's kind of, that's what our blunt <laughs> way of talking about. I'm I'm curious whether you've spent any time looking at um, Carol's work and, and the interplay between um, her work and yours. Well, you know, SDT first about has been around for self-determination has been around for a long time. And we've really focused on three things. One is people's autonomy. And the second one is people's competence. And the third is people's relatedness. Where I think of mindset theory, I think of a theory that's pretty much focused on the competence issue. 
And I think no, no theories in psychology today that are in the field of motivation would disagree that feeling like you can do something is more motivating than feeling like you can't do something. I don't think there's any question about that. And mindset theory is one of, you know, every, well, every approach uh, says that. I have sometimes I get concerns with mindset theory because it kind of leaves out the autonomy piece, which is uh, maybe you, you know, do we want to be get everybody to persist in an activity that they don't value? Should you persist sometimes when maybe you're not matched for something? You know, do I want to uh, give a positive mindset to every uh, high school senior who thinks they're going to be an NBA player? Um, so there's, there's issues in mindset theory, which is, it's not always just good to, uh, to believe you can, because sometimes it's not true. And then secondly, maybe you can do it, but maybe that's not the thing that you uh, would value doing. Uh, and I guess my concern is it, it it's a bit of, and this is, a, I think, a difference between the focus of self-determination theory. If we had students in a classroom that were showing what's called a low mindset, meaning they didn't believe they could make progress. I'd want to change the conditions in the classroom, not the individual difference of the person. So I'd want to create an atmosphere in which they felt like they could accomplish something, that they could move ahead, that we would change the structure and the scaffolding of the learning so that they experienced the capabilities that they have, not trying to convince them from some top-down way, oh, yes, you can. To yeah. and it's your fault you can't because you're not trying exactly because that can be a kind of a blame the victim uh, approach to things when yeah. i would rather say well let's look at the context let's look at the leadership here let's look at the classroom uh what's going on here such that people are having an entity uh, theory about their engagement um, and I, we see that yeah. as a lot more flexible I, I don't see it so much as an individual difference i see it as very contextual there are some places where people will feel like they can't grow but maybe that's because there are big obstacles in their way. That, that's quite interesting because we've spent some time actually exploring that idea of, um, you know, why is it that one person might appear to have a, a, you know, a growth mindset in one domain or even one, literally one room and then walk into another one and all of a sudden they're talking about them in completely different ways and, and exploring again those cultural forces. Again, to go back to your umbrella metaphor, you know, the power that that one teacher yeah. has or that one boss has, or that one corporate culture, uh, you know, that that it's, yeah, I'm really interested in that idea that it's the cultural norm, rather than just saying, it's your fault, you know, you can do it if you want, you obviously don't yeah. want to. I mean, I guess I've always been a little skeptical of anything that says, well, it's really about some cognition you have, and if you just change your attribution, everything will change. I'm much more of a thing of, let's change the circumstance, let's change the climate mm. we're in. That's how we, we can really affect people's motivation. And so the work we... But that's quite a challenge. Yeah. It's easier to blame though, right? And it's easier yeah. to... It, like I'm thinking of um, the boss. I'm thinking of the teacher. I'm thinking of the team leader. You know, it's easier not to do that. It's easier just to find people with growth mindsets, right? Uh, yeah, or grit or resilience or any other than the, these labels that we use that, that I think, in fact, kind of put the responsibility over on the on the, the learner or the worker rather than on the climate we create, which can scaffold their engagement and help them, you know, really grow into their roles. So if people have been, had their interest spiked by this, where would you suggest that they um, go digging to find more of, of your work? 
Have you got? I know there's a, a website, for example. Yeah. Or what, what, where would be a good port of call for people interested in, in learning more about SDT and and how they might incorporate into their into their work? Well, you know, and some of the other people we've talked about today, Dan Pink and Alfie Cohen and Carol Zwack, they've written very popular books on their topics. And SDT being, being the kind of uh, theory it is, we're, we're really a, a very uh, evidence-based theory. Uh, but at the same time, there's been some really, uh, I think, good popular books written on the topic and some how-tos. If you go to our website, selfdeterminationtheory.org, so just typing self-determination theory is one word, .org, uh, there's a wealth of materials there, including links to popular books on the topic, but also, you know, very specific papers in areas like a sport, uh, coaching on uh, executive coaching, on uh, management and leadership, on teaching. Uh, virtually in every area of human endeavor, uh, we have some very, I think, uh, uh, direct articles on research that's been done there on how to motivate and how to create wellness. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing that we haven't really touched on today is that, you know, not just at work, but life more broadly and in terms of well-being and, yeah, just, I guess, relationships and all manner of things. So I'll put a link in the show notes to um, that, that website there. And if anyone, um, are, you, are you on LinkedIn and whatnot, if anyone's interested in connecting on there? or Absolutely. I have a LinkedIn account, so you can just look me up as, uh, you know, Richard uh, M. Ryan on LinkedIn. And we have a... Um we have a self-determination theory Facebook page. Uh, so if you just look up self-determination okay. on Facebook, that's another place. Uh, you can get lots of talks and uh, download uh, YouTube videos of various lectures from uh, researchers around the world. Okay, great. Well, I'll make sure I'm going to dig all those up and I'll, I'll make sure they're in the show notes. Um, I need to finish by saying, Richard, you did a great job answering all those <laughs> questions. Thank you so much. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> well, thanks, Dan. I love the praise. And, uh, you know, because of that, I'm going to come back and talk to you another time. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And um, obviously, with all the dramas that are happening in the, the world right now, and obviously, um, wish you well and your family well as you uh, head back to uh, the US. And uh, yeah, take care of yourself. And hopefully next time we chat, it might be face to face in Australia. I'd look, for, I'd look forward to that, Dan. Thanks very much. So if you found that conversation worthwhile, as I mentioned, I'm going to put all those links that Richard mentioned there um, in the show notes. And of course, don't forget to share this podcast as far and as wide as you can. If you can, maybe even leave us a comment, maybe rate this podcast wherever you get your podcast, because that makes it easier for other people to find us. And of course, if you haven't already, I mean, seriously, what are you doing? But if you haven't already, please make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. If you uh, would like to get in touch with us here at the podcast with perhaps questions you'd like us to address, or perhaps you have suggestions for guests maybe even you yourself would like to be a guest on the show then just head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page there but until our next episode thank you so much for tuning in take care take it easy